Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the GovTech Advisors podcast. This episode has been a long time coming. Uh, we've been kind of trading emails and notes and cancellations and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but as always, two Andrews must meet. And so we've got Andrew Kirk here. So, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, joining the GovTech Advisors podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really cool to be here, to speak. Like you said, I feel uh, really connected because we have this great uh, virtual conversation going on, you know, the power of LinkedIn and social. So it feels a little funny to say nice to meet you, but I guess nice to, you know, actually virtually meet you and have this conversation and get it scheduled. So I'm excited to chat. Yeah, it, it's it's nice to be able to do more than an insightful reaction or a support <laughs> reaction or right. insert funny meme reaction to your LinkedIn posts. Um, and I'll apologize ahead of time for those of you guys who are listening to the podcast. I have a little bit of laryngitis. I'm just now getting over it. Uh, everybody says they can't hear it. I can hear it. So anyway, if you can hear it, that that's why. Um, but um, for the audience that are listening that don't know anything about Andrew, uh, the other Andrew, uh, that's on the call here. Um, we, uh, you know, the GovTech advisors, we kind of came across Andrew uh, months ago uh, in kind of researching GovTech and um, solutions that are out there. Um, and then, yeah, Andrew, you, you <laughs> uh, we got connected. And then all of a sudden I saw all these like really insightful and meaningful and funny and great LinkedIn things that you were posting all the time. So I was like, okay, not only is this guy working for this really important company, but he's also has all these really important things to say as well that are just, that just applied and hits me to the core of just being a salesperson. Um, so I'll let you decide uh, where you want to start. Cause I would love to talk about rock solid and I'd love to talk about um, some of the solutions that you guys provide. Um, but you also have a really great uh, story and past as well. And, and you really do some cool things on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. So dealer's choice. Awesome. Cool. I'll give my, you know, quick kind of personal background. So uh, first, thanks for saying that as a, you know, a fellow content creator, sometimes you think you put things out there and they fall into the black hole and, you know, eight people came across it. And then what I found out is actually, uh, I get a lot more engagement like this one-to-one -one or in person say, Hey, you wrote this. I thought that was really cool. So that, you know, um, has me step back from the edge of giving up on, on creating it and doing it all and be like, okay, someone else got, gave me some positive reinforcement. So I'll keep, keep going for a little bit longer. So I, I, I see you, you're doing it. And so it's, <laughs> so what I found is it, it's like a small percentage of the people actually interact with the content, right. but there's like this whole ocean of people that see it and ingest it and they just yeah. move on. Um, totally. And so I see that all the time. Yeah, that's great. So very quickly for, for me, my background, uh, I was born on the West Coast, but actually raised in the Midwest, had a couple of parents who were academics. So we went where the jobs were. So we were in Iowa City, Iowa for a little bit, and then spent most of my life in uh, Indiana, in Indianapolis, have now kind of come full circle and live in San Diego and back on the West Coast, but went to Indiana University, like a lot of undergrad uh, folks, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but Got an amazing first job out of college working for a B2B health insurance company. And it was right in the lead up to Obamacare. So it was really interesting time to be tapping into regulations and a lot of change and what's going on in an industry. And they hired me to be a uh, management and training role, which basically meant for the first seven months or so, I had no official job title. I would just go around and shadow departments to learn and do like a mini consulting project. So work on next year's first pass of the budget or literally sit on the phones and at answer customer service calls and fail miserably and have these really sweet, <laughs> uh, at, the, at the time predominantly, you know, women with 20 to 30 years experience, like kind of patting me on the back, like, it's okay, sweetie, this, is, this isn't easy. So it's very humbling. And it was also a great exposure to business of all of these different, I went through every department you know, in a 50 to 55 million revenue company to just like deep dive out of school and academics and books into like real world business. And so that was, that was really cool. Hmm. Ended up falling into what they called like a product management and marketing role. It was really now that we're capped on the money we can make on insurance, how do we find other new products and generate revenue in our customer base besides just health insurance? And so we started doing smoking cessation, health and wellness, like these add-on value add kind of things on top of insurance. So it was a really great 
learning experience, but two years in kind of started to realize like health insurance probably wasn't my long-term career path. And so got lucky, kind of fell into a startup weekend, which was basically a 54 hour Friday night to Sunday night uh, experience with some buddies where we built, pitched and deployed uh, kind of an MVP for an app. And so that was my first real um, dipping my toe into technology. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. You can do some amazing things and you don't have to just be an engineer or technologist to get in. And so took that path. Uh, We were uh, we failed. We, we built a cool app. We didn't execute, but it was a great learning experience. And so took that, started a, a lightweight digital agency, taking what I had learned in my insurance world of how do we build new products, but how do we promote them mm. in this very a theme that would come up again in my career, this niche of like unsexy B2B companies, right? They're not the tech crunch. They're not the, the hot things, but they're the real world of what a lot of businesses are. We introduced social email marketing, things that are standard today, but in the early aughts, mid aughts, this was, you know, kind of radical. And so took that experience, built a a digital agency, learned I don't love services business. I like product businesses and came across a great company called uh, City Sourced and got connected and hooked up with them. Um, And they were my first foray into GovTech and took that and rode that for six years and now have been at rock solid for almost three years kind of post merging of city sourced and rock solid. So it's been about 10 years now in GovTech. Yeah, it's really cool. There, there's so much to unpack there because I have so, I have so many questions. All right. So <laughs> um, go back to the, um, when you were doing a, the, in, the MVP that you were talking about, or for those of yeah. you guys that don't know the minimal minimum viable product, was that mm. the eat, drink it? That was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Okay. One of the reasons why I want to talk to you about this is, one, I don't know anything about it, but this is one of the things that I said, I like this guy because on your LinkedIn profile, a lot of people always like to sit there and they like to high five themselves in the mirror and and talk about how great (laughs) they are. And here's all the things that I've done and and all this. But it says very clearly, I made this thing and it failed, right? And so what... from just a a guy to a guy, one, why did it fail? But why did you... uh, why did you feel the need or why, what inspired you to, to kind of say, Hey, this, this was a failure. This was a stepping stone uh, and put that on your LinkedIn profile, because I'm trying to think of another profile that I've seen that somebody said, Hey, I really, I really dorked this one up. Yeah. So the product, it was a really cool idea. There was um, a lot of fun restaurants in Indianapolis that a gumbo place, some local eateries, and they would change their menu all the time. And we said, wow, why can't I have, a hyper-focused Yelp experience. So I don't care about the ambiance. I don't care about, I do care about the service, but for this app, only want to review the meal. So there was some APIs where you could pull menus and you Mm. reviewed just the meal. And we thought, wow, if we could build a Pandora style recommendation engine based on the meals at certain restaurants that you like, we could help promote other uh, restaurants. Um, And there was at the time, I don't know if they're still even around, a restaurants.com that we were talking to that did online um, gift cards for restaurants. And they thought, oh, this would be a great way to, you know, uh, uh, advertise alongside. And what the biggest takeaway for me was like, it was a great product. It was really easy to use. We did not execute well. You had a huge data problem. You needed a lot of input. And we just open this loose and said, Hey, everybody sign up. Whereas now you've seen with any kind of network products, you start very, very, very small and focused. So you only start in one neighborhood in downtown Indianapolis and get, or, you know, one, uh, uh, larger part of the city and you get as many users there and everyone else who comes, you put up a page, right? It says, Hey, coming soon to your area, sign up and we'll let you know, because if you don't have both data of users and data of people who want that, you don't really have that recommendation engine. So that was kind of the challenge. And we realized that you have to really think about that kind of user experience and what's required to have instantaneous success. And we didn't have that. So your second question, yeah, yeah. jump in. Well, I was going to say, so two things. One, are you telling me that there's other restaurants besides St. Elmo's in downtown? uh, (laughs) Uh, Because I don't think anybody ever wants to eat anywhere else that they travel to. Um, But 
I, I would say like back then, I, I can't even imagine how hard it could have been um, because now there's a lot of standards. So there's a lot more APIs, mm -hmm. a lot of things, a lot, a lot more are open. So trying to get all that data in, I mean, mm -hmm. you probably would have to go to each individual place. Do you want to share this data with me? Okay, please. Mm -hmm. And then it, now you can kind of tap into a larger hive and then bring it in and then, yeah. then do something yeah. different with it. Yeah, we were lucky we built it on top of the Foursquare API. So it was my first dabble into location-based oh, uh, information. And then there was a, uh, some, some menu uh, things as well. So we had the data. It was really the user experience of as soon as I jump in and open that app, I need to instantly either rate something and kind of save it for my own personal usage, or I need to see a lot of other users who have shared a lot of really good data and recommendation so I can get some instant uh, success or instant value from the app. And that second part, I think, is where we probably had the miss and we should have thought about that execution a little bit uh, more in depth. But uh, hey, it was good. Great, great learning experience. And I think to your second question about why I put that up there, um, I think one, um, and I have some posts about this, I think trying to normalize failure, um, I think is important, especially as someone, you know, working alongside my colleagues and leading them like, there are going to be times that I will fail. And so trying to normalize talking about that, I think is important. And second on my social, I think that I try to, I'm constantly trying to get to the, the boundary of like, one, not overthink it, but also if there's not like uh, a half second pause of like, I should be pushing the edge of being transparent and putting out there what it is. And I don't have a half, half second of like, oh, is this oversharing? Is this too much? Then, then I'm not pushing myself to not just kind of put out fluff pieces about, you know, myself and oh look, all these great things. And I win all the time. And, and I don't think that's very like genuine or sincere. So I'm trying to always kind of push that boundary. Yeah, no, I, it, listen, I, in, I think this is probably one of the reasons why I love following you on LinkedIn and seeing what you post because my philosophy is, is the exact same uh, thing, uh, you know, because I think that there has been kind of this mystique of, um, you know, fail early, but don't, you know, don't necessarily talk about it or only talk about when, you know, once it's all done and you've succeeded. Um, and I actually am working on a couple of things too, because I really, really messed up a couple of weeks ago, like big time messed up, <laughs> um, some real rookie moves. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, but I did it because of these reasons. And I was like, surely somebody else is doing this too. And so I, I wanted to kind of share that out. So, and I, li listen, I'm sure that there's people listening to this that would, that probably think complete opposite of us that said like, why, mm. why even share that at all? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Um, but I, I think that being quick to own your mistakes and admit mm -hmm. them. Um, it's really easy to learn from them. And also it kind of takes the power away from others that may want to use it against you too. I've seen that. It's like, well, what do I care? Like, I, I know I messed up. Let's learn from it and let's move on. Um, so I really, really appreciate what you did uh, with your LinkedIn. And I don't know, maybe we'll see a trend of uh, more and yeah. more people uh, adopting that practice. Sadly, I've seen kind of a pseudo trend that actually, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of is, someone, especially on Twitter, I'll see, Hey, I uh, had this business. I only sold it for 50 million. Read about my mistakes of how I would have sold it for 75 to hundred million. It's like, <laughs> ah, that's a, that's a, that's like a, that's like yeah. a reverse humble brag. You're like right. saying like how, Oh, how you could have done so, all these mistakes you made, but you had a really, really what anyone on paper would call a really successful outcome. So there's the, yeah. there's, there's some yeah. fakers out there a little bit as well. It's kind of like when people hate on one hit wonders, and I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? I would, I would kill to have a one hit wonder. Like, I mean, you could literally ride that all the way to the bank. There are so many people that don't even get anywhere close to that. So yeah, I mean, I, but I get it. I, I, I totally understand it. Um, so from, from your perspective, you know, one of the other things too, is I saw when you were at city source, because you were there for a while and you accomplished a lot there. Um, but I, you know, rock solid came in talk a little bit about, some of the things that City Source was doing because Rock Solid. So, so what I've seen is that Rock Solid has a great platform. We'll, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. But I, some of the concepts that you were already working on at City Source, um, and then I, I would love to understand kind of as much as you want to get into the detail of when Rock Solid came, and then how it's helped you guys joining forces or Rock Solid kind of acquiring you guys and kind of catapulting you guys to that next level. Um, so yeah, I mean, feel free to take it from there. Yeah, so I was really fortunate and lucky to get connected with Jason Kiesel, who was the CEO and founder of CitySource. So I was not there in the early garage days. 
but I came on shortly thereafter. But Jason, really talented engineer. He had worked at the chat product for MySpace. And like a lot of great engineers, he had this problem in his neighborhood in Los Angeles where someone had illegally dumped something outside and he had no idea where to go and get help. It's about a year after the iPhone and the app store had been released. He said, there's got to be a better way. Like I'm using this technology for checking in on Foursquare. I'm using it to interact with my bank. I'm doing all these things. Like there has to be a way I can just take a picture. So he built um, a tool that was an app, lightweight, snap a picture, grab the GPS. And um, he had also uh, scraped a database of his elected officials all the way from who's your school president up to your Congress representative. He's like, well, I'll just send this as an email off to those pers- off to these different elected officials and somewhat of his, you know, <laughs> naiveness about how, again, local government really works. He thought if I just send it there, someone will take care of it. Right. Um, got lucky and a council member in LA at the time, Eric Garcetti got onto this and said, wow, this is great. Like I want to use this for my district. Um, he went on to be mayor of LA. And so that was kind of where Jason saw, wow, there's some potential here. So I'm going to build that up. And I joined um, Jason uh, shortly before he raised a little bit of funding to help support the company. And we, we kind of took it and grew it there at the local government level. We were very, very, very fortunate that, um, Esri, E-S-R-I, the, you know, GIS conglomerate was like, uh, saw this and said, hey, this is something really cool. You guys are doing GIS-centric citizen engagement. We thought, wow, that's cool. Um, What's GIS, right? So that's how kind of naive we were about that space, but they really helped introduce us to a lot of uh, their amazing local government customers. And so we took that and one of the, they're a, a global company, one of the projects that we were able to get was with uh, Panama 311. So basically the customer service center for the entire country of Panama. CitySource served as the front end citizen component. And then there was the back end system where they managed requests for service, requests for information. And that was powered by rock solid technology who was um, mm. started in Austin, Texas, but had a big presence down in San Juan, Puerto Rico over the years of working with Latin and Central American governments to provide technology at the local government level. So that was our first kind of partnership around 2015, 2016. And it just so happened then in 2019, they were kind of looking for the next phase of their growth and opportunity. And I'm happy to chat more about that, but that's kind of the first initial relationship we had. And it um, took off again a few years later. From from a from a GovTech perspective, I would say, you know, um, doing what you guys are doing and what CitySource has done and what Rock Solid is now doing, uh, you know, a lot of people see interacting with their local government or the, the trying to interact with their local government is 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 hard. It's 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 not easy. It's it's um, futile. Um, <laughs> nobody's going to see it, and so. You know, when you know, I, I've known about these tools, but as I learn more about you and what you guys are doing, um, you know, I'm very appreciative of the work that you're doing because I think a lot of people see, especially government, local governments interacting with their citizens as, a, as kind of a one way street. Like, this is what we're going to do. By the way, we're going to take this floss money and go over here and do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, so having the ability to take what you want and having your voice heard and having this great platform to do it is absolutely critical. Um, so from a, from, for all the sellers that are on this, um, listening to this podcast, convincing a, one of the things that a lot of people uh, that are, that listen to this podcast, or maybe that they're thinking about it, they think that selling to the government is hard. And they think Mm -hmm. that getting the government to adopt technology is hard. So I would think that, talk to me a little bit about, um, how do you, or how was the sales process when maybe at City Source and at Rock Solid, when you guys are going in to say, not only should you use this technology, but the, mm-hmm. using this technology is going to help your community talk to you or get connected with you faster. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, you know, is that harder to sell than, hey, oh, you need, uh, uh, I'm sure it's, it's a little bit different than, hey, your GIS system needs to be updated or here's the new patch for that. Or mm-hmm. by the way, you should use this X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, emergency broadcast system. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of like sellers or people thinking about GovTech, I have a great uh, 
friend and we we stay in touch he's had a couple successful exits and he somewhat jokingly but somewhat seriously tells like anyone who's totally new or foreign to this space is like hey if you want something quick and high rate of success and fast and get rich like don't start in GovTech because that is not the you know easiest fastest path you have to have some other reason why you like working in this space you can be successful you can have a great outcome and you can work with some really cool customers but just walk in with clear eyes about what the expectation is fortunately i would say i was too naive when I first started to even realize that and, and, and went in and just saw like a really cool product, a great team, uh, an amazing use case and something that I could see would help communities. And I had done stuff in the past kind of volunteer in terms of helping communities or serving in local organizations. And this kind of combined all of that. So that was really cool and really fun. What was interesting in the early days, you know, eight, 10 years ago was this idea that um, we would somewhat flip government, I think a lot of industries, but especially government folks had thought very department-based, so build inside and then go out. So for example, and it makes a, a, a ton of sense when you first think about it, is if I'm in public works or I'm in code enforcement, or I'm in parks and rec, I'm gonna build tools that help me or I'm gonna buy tools in the back office that help me do my job day in, day out better, right? And then a lot of those systems and processes would then bolt on this public facing tool as well that would help someone as a resident get the service or access to the information they need. The, the problem with that is that the average person in local government thinks very different than the average local resident. Most people, and we forget when we work in government day and out, most people don't think about code enforcement versus public works versus streets and waters. They don't think department. They just think this is my local government. I right. want to push it in and I want it to go to the right place. So the transformation that's been cool that I've seen over the last eight to 10 years is this more actually outside in approach anything public or resident or citizen facing, think about that experience, that ease of use. And then we'll design the processes, the systems, the business flow internally to support our departments. But let's not make residents have to become local government experts in order to get services. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that because it's, it's, um, there's, you know, of course I've dealt with local government many times and it's always been kind of, hard and cumbersome and trying to find the right person in, in, mm -hmm. in services. But I would say a lot of the, and this is from my perspective. So I, and I don't even rely quote unquote on governments, local governments that, that munch, uh, you know, for certain services or cer mm -hmm. for certain housing needs or all this. So I can't even imagine somebody on the other side that has to rely a lot on local government yeah. um, that maybe doesn't have a platform like this because I was looking um, so one of the things I really enjoy is, is that you guys have this um, great way for, especially for like affordable housing, um, mm -hmm. for people to have access to apply and to interact and to pay and all of that. And, and it's in, I can't even imagine before that, like how would, like if you needed a place to live, how would mm -hmm. you even go through that process and how cumbersome and, and painful would that process be? And at the end of the day, they're trying to find a place to live. Um, and I, I know this one you know, uh, micro example of what you guys do, but, um, but it's also why, and to your point, the people that are listening to this, they're thinking about getting into GovTech, like, yeah, I mean, it's not sexy and it's not fast, but mm -hmm. I mean, these, these types of solutions aren't going to, um, let's say enrich uh, shareholder value, uh, mm -hmm. you know, anything like that. I mean, you're helping somebody find a house faster or get their family the need mm -hmm. that they need or get something nasty off their street that's right in front of their front door, um, which I think it, I, I think is incredible. So when, when people are looking at these solutions from your perspective, do you think that, um, I mean, what's, what's the main catalyst that somebody says, okay, I need something like this. Um, and then is it that, oh, I, I, my community says, I, I have a hard way of interacting with you guys, or is mm -hmm. there like something like the, a key thing that says, okay, I'm going to get something like this. Yeah. So we have that rock solid. We have really three kind of solutions that are our, our primary use case today. Um, 
we have uh, our, our CRM, we call that OneView, it's our constituent relationship management system. That's a fancy way of saying we wanna capture as many citizen interactions through different channels, telephone, obviously digital, web, mobile, SMS, chat, social. We wanna capture those and give you a profile of that resident, right? So if, again, we go back to that, I'm only thinking about my parks and rec view of the world or my code enforcement, there's great back office systems and we're not gonna replace that. We're gonna partner with that, but there's really no system where the citizen is front and center and their use experience and how they access service and how they access information. And we're trying to be part of this movement we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, called citizen-centric design, like build it from the citizen first and then integrate it into the back office. So the kind of things we hear is like my department or my city or my county, we get so many different inquiries and requests through elected officials and emails and calls. Like how do I even start to start putting this into a centralized system that I can then add workflow and I as a leader can track what happens and follow up with that information. So that's that's a big big thing that we hear and that's where that CRM comes into play. We have um, uh, PrimeGov, a company we acquired last year that really focuses heavily on agenda and meeting management. And for those <laughs> elected officials who are, are building that process and very fortunate that um, along with that process, Tom Spangler, the uh, you know, CEO and co-founder previously of Granicus for, you know, the late 90s for almost 16 years, uh, led that company. He's come over and is now the CEO at Rock Solid. So he and his team know that space really well. And then that last tool you actually mentioned about affordable housing is our Streamline product. And it's like this easy, low code, quick solution, put up a portal, build input, workflow, notification, and then some payment components and management. So we've seen affordable housing, some tax use cases, records request is our, our biggest uh, push recently. So responding to, you know, Freedom of Information Act type open records request, we've had a lot of penetration there. So based on those different kind of use cases, that's how we start to engage with our cities, counties, and we even have a couple small countries as well. Do you? Yeah, because I saw that you guys have, um, you know, quite a large um, scope of, 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 of residents that you kind of support, but um, I mean, is it primarily North American based that you guys are kind of helping to do that? Or, I mean, I know you've mentioned a couple other countries in there. Is there, um, is there a country that's more leading the way for the citizen centric approach uh, outside of us? Well, uh, there is. So at CitySource, we were very fortunate that, again, working with Esri, we had a lot of, they had a global footprint. So we worked with customers in Australia, Netherlands. We did a big project in the United Arab Emirates. So you would go there and on a billboard, you would see our, this is, I'm dating myself a little bit, but our BlackBerry branded UAE app right there as you come in through the, so that was, that was a pretty cool project. And we did stuff um, all over the world. Today with Rock Solid, I focus on predominantly North America. And then in Central and Latin America, we have a lot of uh, deep, deep relationships with customers. It's an interesting, it's a very different market in North America. You see a lot of very specific point solutions. So you do CRM really well, or you do uh, GPS tools really well, or you do hardware really well. Down there, especially on the software side, you can get a deep, deep, it's a very personal one-to-one -one relationship. So you get a relationship with that uh, regional district or that elected official, and you can build a lot of tools and solutions very specific to their use case. In terms of places that are like leading, it's interesting. It's, you know, you look at or you read about like Estonia or some of these places actually where they had, they were somewhat uh, uh, later to the game initially, and now they've like almost leapfrogged, right? Because you don't have some of the historical uh, underlying tech debt that you have at these older kind of places, right? It's like, if you go, it's analogous to if like, if you go to uh, India, they bypassed online banking and just went straight to mobile banking, right? Like they, they leapfrogged and Estonia has done that from a GovTech perspective. I know there's some couple other ones in Europe that, that you've seen that. So it's always interesting to follow what others are doing internationally and try to see if we can copy the ones who are doing it well. And especially in local government, I think more and more, if we can start to learn from what others are doing who are similar to us. Historically, local governments, I think have looked at, hey, what is my neighbor doing? That's a good place for me to learn. 
and that is, but if you're the, uh, you know, a suburb of uh, Dallas and you're 50 to 150,000 population, you really shouldn't be looking at Dallas or Fort Worth as your, your uh, you know, city that's similar to you. You should be looking at maybe an edge city of uh, Chicago or Phoenix, right? These other large metropolises that are growing fast and you're an edge city. So I think more and more getting local governments to find similarities that aren't just regional is really important. There's a lot of great kind of online marketplaces out there trying to promote those stories. So that's some of the stuff I'm seeing in terms of innovation and in local government. I mean, well, if, if also from, from innovation standpoint, I mean, are, what are, I would say, you know, because working in DoveTech, we take a lot of things for granted, especially, you know, you're, you're saying um, that you're dating yourself with, by saying you had a BlackBerry app. By the way, I was one of the last holdouts uh, to go to an iPhone. Uh, and I, I went to iPhone 4. I miss my BlackBerry all the time for a couple of different reasons. But I mean, there's still things today, um, even in the stuff that I'm dealing with, that stuff that's been around for 10, 12, 15 years that, uh, you know, I, I bring it to a local government. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's brand new to them. Like, you know, it's like, they're just mm-hmm. discovering like a TiVo. It's like, what are you talking about? This is, <laughs> this, it, it, it's been here this whole time. Like where, yeah. where, where, where have you been? And so, sure. you know, it's with, with rock solid and what the things that you guys are doing for that community engagement, I'm sure that some of the customers that you guys are coming across are, um, like very, uh, maybe they're, they're not even aware that these solutions could even exist and help mm-hmm. them in a way and so, uh, and, th- and then you're talking about other countries that are already going past us uh, in yeah. some of that engagement. So how do you, for, especially in North America, because pre- predominantly people listening to this are in North America, and yeah. we get this all the time, like, how do you kind of break down those objections of saying, well, you know, uh, our council is technology averse, or mm. they don't trust the cloud, or they don't, um, they don't understand, our, 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 our citizens aren't, aren't tech savvy. Um, you know, how do you guys, how do you guys kind of overcome that? Yeah. Um, the short answer is I send them a meme, uh, with a bunch of, uh, old retired ladies sitting at a diner all with their face down in their phone, looking at it and saying, (laughs) you know, the the meme says kids these days, right. And a bunch of retired people looking in their phone. I'm I'm kidding, obviously, but, uh, the, the reality is, is like, um, yes, local government tends to be behind, other uh, industries, but I, first of all, try to always start with the, uh, the positive side, like local government. I, I talk to people who maybe are outside and ask like, oh, you work with local governments and technology. How can that possibly be that they use technology? Like I never interact with local government. And I'm like, okay, great. And I ask them about their day, right? And they say, oh, I woke up, I turned on, I took a hot shower. I made some food. I drove my car to commute. My kids got on the school bus and went to school, right? The local public school. I'm right. Okay. So great. You had a utility, bring you fresh water. You had a road that was perfectly paved with streetlights. That was the most safe, fastest transportation. And someone picked up your child and you had no fear and took them to a place where they would learn all day. Right. So at the baseline, 99%, like people get a lot of great service and we just take that for granted. So I try to be really happy and have a, you know, positive perspective on that. It's at the, you know, 1% or a 10th of 1% where we want to help push them and get better and, and iterate. And they are like any other industry, they have to democratize their services. Private sector gets to pick and choose who they want to serve. And that is great for the capital market, but local governments have to provide service. So they are going to be naturally behind because of the structure. And I think that's a good thing that they have to uh, push that as much as possible. But I still think we can have a level of innovation. And while I would love to think about more and more radical innovation at the local government level, right? Like from Palm and BlackBerry to the iPhone, that was radical innovation. That's less and less rare. I care about the iterative innovation, like always getting better. And there's lots of great leaders inside of local government who are thinking about that, who are thinking about citizen-centric design, thinking about coming from outside in to inside out. And working with those folks is, is exciting. More and more, I get less objections of, hey, you know, 
we need to introduce technology. It's kind of become the default. I think five, 10 years ago, still like, eh, I don't know if this is right for our city or our user base. And I think now kind of the ITification of everything that we do in life and the software eating everything that we do has become so de facto for, you know, folks even our age and older, and they're the now the leaders of local government. They've really, I think for the most part have bought into that. And there's very few who are like, no change. I'm going to ride out until retirement and keep my forms and my pen and paper. Yeah. Yeah. I got a PDF off something the other day and I'm like, <laughs> really? I had to like scan this or can, you know, so, so you, you mentioned it, you had a, a good point. So you're talking about listening and, and following and being informed by certain leaders within the industry. Mm-hmm. And so who do you, who are you looking towards or who are you kind of ingesting right now um, that other people might want to kind of look to that people that are kind of pushing the industry forward um, mm-hmm. for these radical innovations or iterative. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's lots of great companies out there and I want to see more and more folks doing things in local government. So I definitely look at the, you know, kind of private gov tech companies and stay very close to that and have lots of conversations just because it interests me. I think on the public side, like I really look at um, Bloomberg and what they've done to help spin up chief innovation officers and bring that into cities. And especially those chief innovation officers who say like, yes, software technology is one component, but better processes, getting people comfortable with change, like doing that whole spectrum. I think that's been pretty radical shift. So I I definitely read, um, the, the, the Bloom, Bloomberg and the work that they're doing to help, you know, the what cities want certification. So there's a lot of great information. Um, personally, I think maybe not so much radical innovation, but just because they're fun and I enjoy their content. Um, ELGL, the Emerging Local Government Leaders, they do great content from innovation series to diversity and inclusion to the future of local governments to the future leaders of local government. So they're fun to watch because I think they're really thinking about what can we do now, but also how do we always push the edge on the, the future of what we want local government and local government leaders to look like. So, I mean, we're on, we're on LinkedIn all the time. So it, it, are there some people that we should be following or people should be following on, on LinkedIn or EL, is ELGL and Bloomberg, are they on uh, LinkedIn are they, or would that be a good source for people to in, ingest some of that? Yeah, no, I think um, they, you know, they, they cover, those cover very broad spectrums. I know they have um, podcasts, so they're putting out their um LinkedIn. I, I, I tend to be very active. So I would love anyone listening to as, as shameless plug for myself to interact or definitely reach out and love having conversations. Um, I think what's pretty cool is we're still like in the early days of people putting out content. So there's not um, maybe like other industries or markets, like huge number of people trying to be quote unquote, like influencers. I think there's still a pretty small group of people who are writing and have found their niche. So there's a lot of good ones in like procurement and how do we improve the procurement process, which I think unlocks a lot more innovation in local government. I think there's a lot thinking about um, how do we build successful GovTech companies, but encourage more companies to build tools and support local governments, right? I think uh, my, my big thing is in GovTech, it's not maybe one or two or three people. It's like, I think of it as it's, it's not a zero sum game. The more people we can get involved, the more people we can get talking, the more people we can get building and having conversations with local government, it builds the entire ecosystem and overall benefits all of us involved. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And maybe it's because I'm in an echo chamber, but uh, <laughs> I, I see more and more people getting involved. And maybe it's just because I follow more and more GovTech and, and, it's, and it's really um, it's really, really encouraging because mm-hmm. I see some really big impacts that it's having uh, directly to citizens. Um, so, all right, you mentioned something I want to I, I want to shift gears a little bit. So, mm-hmm. one of the things that I find really interesting is that uh, is your approach to LinkedIn, in mm-hmm. because a lot of people see LinkedIn as this place where um, I know a lot of people that never log into it, mm-hmm. um, and they have it just because they think they have it, and then. They kind of, they, they spin it up when they need to find a job, they find a job and they spin it down. Um, but, you know, I, I, I want to understand a little bit more from your perspective of, you know, you're creating content, 
you're talking about gut tech, you're talking mm-hmm. about sales, sales leadership, sales techniques and methodology. You know, why did you start doing that on, on LinkedIn? Um, and, you know, what kind of impact has it had for you? Not only mm-hmm. just you personally, but um, has it helped with you professionally and, and what you're trying to accomplish, uh, you know, because everybody's trying to hit their goals and, and, and do yeah. what's right by the company as well. Yeah. So for me, you know, I thought about, I mean, I've, I've started blogging over 10 years ago. I've kind of gotten away from that, but it was always like kind of interested in putting and writing and putting things out there. I wish I was better at video. So we'll see how this turns out, but uh, writing is my natural kind of go-to and it's how I both think and process. And then once I do that, you know, putting it out there and sharing is interesting for me. I wish I had some great, super great secret to a niche, but really what is it? Well, I've worked in local governments and GovTech for more than 10 years. So I feel like comfortable writing about that. And I've led and helped develop and build some sales teams and organizations. So I feel comfortable writing about those two things. And for me, really the benefit is um, I truly believe that, you know, uh, awareness and attention will continue to be the, the currency that's relevant. Um, I think that more and more that um, you can be in front of folks, uh, I think it helps both from networking. So I'm always trying to hire and I want to know and see good people who are out there. If I think that I have a job that's opening in two weeks and I start networking two weeks before, I failed and done you know networking wrong. So constantly being out there and one, because I just find it interesting talking to interesting people, seeing what's new, what's happening, but also building that network. So that's a benefit because I'm always looking to hire and fill spots. And I've always found better people through network than an online job board. Um, I 100%. Think, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think mean, that always. always, yeah. And I think that um, the that sales will continue to evolve in that people, people have always bought from people, but more and more, I think we'll see the idea of a big you know, brand or company kind of stepping into the background, obviously not the Nikes and the Coca-Colas, but I think more and more it'll be the people at those organizations who will see and will be front and center and feeling like I can research and learn and know those people online in advance of even going into a buying process. I think that's the future of sales and I don't think GovTech is any different. So I think that naturally anybody who wants to be in sales or sales leadership, social selling is just a, a skill that's important to think about and get comfortable with. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I of course agree with you. Again, I'm in my echo chamber, but it, you know, because I think that the more, um, you know, genuine that you can be, I think people just gravitate towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a quick story. So like I was on, um, we had Paul Comfort, on the podcast a, a couple of, um, you know, it was a couple of months back. Mm. Um, but one of the reasons, and, and this is one of my philosophies with LinkedIn and why I post on there is I, I love being accessible uh, to people and I love people knowing when they should access me. Like they should, be, oh, Andrew, that guy is this, I, I'm going to reach out to him. And so I want people to talk to me because one of the things I love doing is I love linking people up or referring them or, you know, building a bridge between different industries. Um, and this was no, this was so, uh, this was exactly what happened with Paul Comfort. Paul Comfort, if you guys don't know him, he is a leader in public transit. He has, you know, dedicated his entire career um, to helping communities. Um, and he's extremely active uh, on, on LinkedIn and so much so that he is um, just like a good local government. He is accessible to anybody that wants to reach out. Um, and so it's, it's this great thing where I, I saw him, I met him, I reached out, he immediately communicated back, we got linked up, uh, and it was very easy to do that. And so I think that, um, to your point about networking, I think that's one of the big, it is a social network, but being on a social network is different than networking. Um, and so being able to kind of connect people is really great. And so I think that, um, you know, you, uh, you, you kind of said it without saying it, understanding LinkedIn and saying, I'm going to find my niche of these are the things I'm really good at, or these mm-hmm. are the things I know, because it's very evident when you see people talking on LinkedIn about stuff that they're maybe recycling, or maybe they're trying to figure things out. But again, it goes back to just being genuine. Um, and so I, you know, I appreciate the content that you put out there and a lot of other people do as well. And I think that it's going to become more and more apparent because 
at least in my experience on LinkedIn, if I'm trying to find a prospect or if I'm trying to link up with somebody, uh, the thing I hate the most is when somebody links up with me and then I immediately get the barrage of notes and messages about, hey, let's connect and I can do this and you get 80,000 leads and all that. Um, you know, when, when I connect with somebody on LinkedIn, I don't ask them for anything. I just let them start seeing who I am. And so by the time I get to them or I bump into them at a conference, um, that kind of awkward phase is, oh, I, I saw you on LinkedIn and this is mm -hmm. you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, so I'm sure from your perspective, uh, it's probably helped you with some clients, not just finding new people to kind of hire, but I'm sure reducing the barrier um, of just having those initial conversations with some of the customers that you're looking to, to work with or your team's looking to work with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you have to have a great product. You have to deliver that in local government. They're going to validate and check who you are, that you're not just, uh, you know, Andrew K. Kirk selling software out of a van in, in San Diego. You're a real company, but all things equal product and your go-to-market. If somebody knows you or has seen your face, there's a familiarity bias and people like things that are familiar to them. It's why we'll see another Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie again in our lifetime. We will probably see, yeah, yeah, fingers A good crossed. one, a good one. A good one, yeah. I mean, there'll yeah. probably be a Captain Planet movie and a Thundercats movie and they'll just all, they're gonna, they're gonna bring all of that back because we like things that are familiar and we've seen before. So yeah. um, that, 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 I think lowering kind of that, barrier of entry or that getting to that more familiar comfortable level i think it's a great tool for that and i'm a big proponent and i'm also like you a big proponent of not immediately selling like i've put up a post in total uh uh you know in being completely sarcastic in putting up this screenshot of saying like, hey, it looks like we both use the internet. We should connect with each other, right? Like right. make it as a generic and not custom and tailored to me. That's not what I do. I connect with a lot of people as well, both in companies and local government because I genuinely am, am interested, but I never then follow up with a pitch or please read my content or do that. It's really just to start that initial conversation. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a big miss of people when they first get on there. They need to see immediate results, immediate leads that come out of it. And it's, it just it doesn't work that way. It shouldn't work that way. You actually posted something, I believe, on Twitter because I do stalk you over there too, <laughs> where you were talking about this, where uh, a lot of people view sales as um, that salespeople are con artists, mm. and and it's it's. Um, the answer is uh, yes. Of course, there's con artists in sales. There's con artists yeah. in every uh, every uh, profession. Um, but if you are a good salesperson, that you mm -hmm. are genuinely providing a solution or a service that's going to improve, in your case, communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, that resonates so much because I have, I'm not going to call them out, but I have some family members um, that they see salespeople as just these sleazy scumbags. Um, mm -hmm. And I totally get it. There's a lot of people that kind of have given off this energy, but that's also why I think that um, LinkedIn and being extra transparent, like failing at a startup or right. failing. Like, I think that that brings down the mystique. Like I'm not, I, I'm going to tell you that I messed up over here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try mm -hmm. to sell you something that you shouldn't deserve. Yeah. Um, but so again, I, I'm just patting you on the back right now. I, I just appreciate yeah, your no, method. I, and, and I think it, it, for the people that are listening to this, I would say, don't take our word for it as LeVar Burton would say. Um, but it, it, but it, there is, an extreme amount of value that you may not understand of just being genuine with people uh, for the good and bad of what's going on in your world. Yeah. And, you know, I'll follow that up with, I haven't done enough. I wish I could do more to help get the sales message out there because I was in that exact same spot growing up. I had this uh, unpleasant view or stereotype of salespeople and I never took a sales class growing up. I never took one in college. I never took one in grad school. You know. And But I took a lot of behavioral psychology class and uh, thinking about how people make decisions and negotiation classes and a lot of things that led to sales. But because in my mind, I had this idea of the Wolf of Wall Street mentality, right? Slick, fast, no, you can't get off the phone. I have to close you on this penny stock right now today. And the reality is, is I've never done anything like that. In fact, yeah. I'm an okay presenter and people I hire are okay to not necessarily great presentation because their job is actually being very persistent over a long period of time, over a long sales cycle and managing that 
it's almost project managing for sales, getting it to each step. And so I had none of that idea. And that's really what the majority of most salespeople do, but it's the opposite of what the majority of the broader public thinks about salespeople and this, uh, you know, kind of sleazy scam you as fast as I can get your credit card, hang up the phone. And if we ever did that in local government, we'd be out of business in 12 months because one person would find out that we're not delivering a real product. No one would ever buy from us again. And we would have spent a huge amount of time getting that one or two customers and we'd be out of business. So it's um, a message I'm, I hope more and more people start to understand about you know, what a real kind of typical, especially B2B salesperson looks like. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, so I, I appreciate you. And so for those of you guys that are listening to the podcast that aren't yet convinced or don't know where to go, uh, I'll put Andrew's uh, information down so you can follow him on LinkedIn. Uh, I'll put his Twitter, uh, put some information about Rock Solid in there. Um, but I, I, I know we're coming up on time and I want to be mm-hmm. respectful of your time too. Um, so I just want to say that I am supremely jealous of you living in San Diego because uh, you live very close to the best tacos I've ever eaten in my entire life. Oh, Blair. Um, and Blair. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name. Uh, yes, okay. uh, I'm from uh, Las Cuatros Milpas. It's in the uh, gas lamp uh, district. Yeah, nice. yeah. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's like the four grandmothers or whatever. Um, yeah. it, for those of you guys that are listening that are in San Diego or near San Diego, you must go there. It literally took my breath away when I ate it the first <laughs> time. I was like, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. Um, yeah. And um, anyway, so I... And yeah, I, I've got some goofy pictures of me on at La Jolla. So, uh, you know, nice. I'm, I'm very, I, I'm very uh, jealous and uh, impressed uh, with uh, yeah. accessibility to amazing uh, beaches and food where you are. Well, I'm so lucky and my wife is actually from here. And so that's how we ended up. And uh, growing up, as I mentioned, I spent about three or four years in Los Angeles and then moved to the Midwest. And always growing up, I told people, you know, Hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from, you know, I'm from California. I was trying to be cool and play it off. And then I met my wife in college and I told her, Oh, I'm from California. I told her my backstory. She said, you're not from California. You're from the Midwest. So I was, uh, I was, I was put in my place in the most sweetest, kindest way, but we've been in school and have been together ever since. And she's from this area and brought me here. And it is, uh, uh, very, very lucky and very fortunate to live in such a beautiful place. I don't want anyone else to, um, uh, miss out. So if they are around and they want to go check out and get some tacos, I'd love to head downtown and, and check out the uh, taco recommendation there from Andrew. Deal. Deal. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad we got to link up in, in real life, uh, <laughs> kind of. Um, but uh, like I said, guys, everybody that's listening, you'll have uh, all of Andrew's information down below and in the uh, details. So, uh, Andrew, thank you for being on. And this wraps up another episode of the GovTech Advisors podcast. Have a good rest of your day, everybody. See you. Thanks.